to 42. And uh, when I was there, uh, a really old, wrinkled, <coughs> gray, beat up, a guy with a thousand miles on him, itinerant preacher came and he met with us. He looked what you would think Moses would look like. He had really, really long white hair and a really, really long white beard. He was very intimidating in that respect. He was a small man, but he, again, he looked like Moses. He looked like he was a, maybe a couple thousand years old. The rumor was that he'd preached in every church in the world. And we know that wasn't true, of course, but he looked like he had. And uh, yeah, he, he just had our instant respect. He'd written several books. I'd read a couple of them. And we knew the guy knew what he was talking about. And he did us a great favor. He had a, a, an open Q&A with, with the students. And it was great. And uh, he said, ask me anything you want. And the first question was, and let me tell you his name. His name was Richard Owen Roberts. I do not know if he's still alive or not. But isn't that a great name, Richard Owen Roberts? Sounds like a Puritan or something. But anyway. The first question was, what's the greatest need of the church? The modern church. And before the question really ended, his answer was already echoing in the room. He had this giant voice, right? He said, God. God is the greatest need in the modern church. That was his answer. The follow-up question was, if you were hired by a church or were going to plant a new church, what would be the first thing you would preach? And again, before the question had ended, the answer was ringing and echoing throughout the room. God! He says, the church, the modern church has forgotten who God is. We're worshiping His blessings. We've forgotten who it is that has blessed us. We're so busy doing church. We're so busy, you know, making much of the priest or the, or the preacher or having a great church building or the programs we do. We're so involved in church, we no longer look at God. And when he said it, I knew that he was right. He said a correct view of God is the beginning and ending of everything that truly matters. And I knew he was right. And when I became a pastor <clears throat> here at International Church of Milan, we spent 15 weeks looking at God. That was my first sermon series. We just looked at the attributes of God. And those of you who've been around, you know, this is what I talk about all the time. God is, is the main character in every sermon. It's not just how you and I, you know, can be Christians. A serious... Bible-believing Christian understands the only way we can be Christians is because God is God. It's because God, it's because God is who God is. And so, we took 15 weeks and we just looked at God. And it was very refreshing. It was spiritually liberating and therapeutic. You know, to stop being consumed with yourself and just look at God and love Him. And that's what we did for 15 weeks. We looked at His eternality, His infinity, His solitariness, His I amness. God says, I am the everlasting God, the first and the last. That's Isaiah 41. We looked at His glory, His majesty, His grandeur, His renown, His beauty. Have you ever heard a sermon on the beauty of God? I've got one. 
I'll send it to you if you're interested. I never heard a sermon on the beauty of God. What a tragedy. I grew up in the church. No one had ever preached to me about how breathtakingly beautiful Jesus Christ is. Okay, I think we may have construction upstairs. Or they uh, disapprove of my last sentence. But either way, I'm going to go on. We looked at His beauty. God says, I am God and there's nobody like me, Isaiah 46. During that sermon series, when I first came to ICM, uh, we talked about His holiness, His righteousness, His purity, and His wrath. God says, I am, a, I am holy, holy, holy. Vengeance and retribution are mine, says the Lord. We looked at His goodness, His faithfulness, His loving kindness, His grace, and His mercy. God says, there is no God beside me. I am a righteous God and a Savior, Isaiah 45. We looked at His sovereignty, His supremacy, His omnipotence, His incomparability. God says, there's no one like me and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Beloved, this is Christianity. If you don't know who God says He is, I don't think you're a Christian. I think you may think you're a Christian. I think you may be playing Christianity. I think you may be in love with a pseudo-Jesus because there are uh, quite a few emanations of pseudo-Christs in uh, what is called the modern church. But do you know the biblical God? This awesome, consuming fire God. Do you know this God? Do you tremble before this God? And do you rejoice before this God? Do you worship this great God? Of the Bible. This is Christianity. Jesus says this is eternal life that they may know you. And if you don't know the biblical God, all bets are off. You have to know the God. You have to know who God says He is. Not some cartoon God that your preacher has preached to you. Uh, some church you may have grown up in. You need to know the biblical God. This is true Christianity. And this is the joy of true Christianity. Our God is God. He's awesome. And He'll fill up our souls forever. I say this to you a lot, but you know it's true. What was Abraham's reward? Was it Isaac? Was it the promised land? Was it his great wealth? What was his reward? What did God say to Abraham? What was his reward? Anybody know? God was His reward. God says, I'm your reward. If you don't understand this about Christianity, you've not learned God correctly. God's your reward, beloved. God is your reward. Not health, wealth, and prosperity. God is your reward. God is your reward. There are million Christians around the world who are sick and poor. God has not abandoned them. God loves them. God is doing a mighty thing through them. Don't get sidetracked with this false gospel that's prevalent in much of the Western church. American theologian David Wells, he wrote a book about 20 years ago. And um, it's called No Place for Truth. I would rec recommend it to you. Let me just give you a few things he said there which I believe are completely true. He critiques the modern church, this is 20 years ago, for theological illiteracy. I concur. Theological illiteracy. 
You say, well, Jim, I, I'm a Christian, but I don't know the Bible very well. Shame on you. And, I, and I, I have to say, just stop calling yourself a Christian if you're not willing to give yourself to the study of the Word of God. God doesn't call His people to be ignorant. You are called to be students of the Word. You're supposed to know the Word. You're supposed to be able to defend the Word in the world. When you know, the, the social fabric of the culture seems to be collapsing, you're supposed to be able to stand out in the world and say what the truth is. God says X. Can you do it? That's why you're still on the planet. To be His witness. And you can't be His witness if you don't know who He says He is. And you don't know what He says about homosexuality. You don't know what He says about abortion. You don't know what He says about fornication. You don't know what He says about pornography. You don't know what He says about blind ambition. You don't know what He says about greed, uh, about, about lust. You don't know what He says. You can't stand out in the world and tell people what He says. Shame on you. Shame on me. If I don't have the knowledge or the courage to be God's mouthpiece in the world. Beloved, that's what the true church is about. The mouthpiece of God in the world. You are the mouthpiece of God in the world. This is how God saves His people. Through your witness. God saves His people through your witness. As you go out in the world and you simply say the truth. So, we don't want to be theologically illiterate. He, go, he, he indicts modern preaching. He says it's chatty, it's weightless, it's entertainment-oriented. I'm back to David Wells in the book he wrote. He calls modern worship vacuous. What does that mean? <laughs> it's just empty-headed. It's, I just do it, I show up. I should show up, I show up. I don't expect to be changed. I don't expect to encounter God. I don't expect to be in awe. I don't expect to be convicted. I just show up because I should show up. And I do the motions. I go through the motions. I sing the words. I listen to the preacher. But I have not submitted myself to the Spirit of God. He says most high-profile pastors are simply posters. They're simply the best posters and the best marketers. And then he says this, in all this man-centered, success-driven mentality, God has been pushed to the periphery. God has been marginalized. That's what Richard Owen Roberts was talking about. God has been pushed to the periphery in many, many so-called Christian churches. Now, if you take Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestantism, if you take the whole thing, and, and put the Christian label on it. Uh, Keith and I were talking earlier. The vast majority would be apostate. They no longer hold to this. This is no longer their authority. It's not their, their, their final authority. They don't hold to this. They don't teach this exclusively. They use it if it suits their purposes. But if it doesn't suit their purposes, they don't use it. They just make stuff up. Okay? So the true church, the true church holds to the truth. The true church holds to the truth even when it's unpopular in the world and it's becoming more and more unpopular as we know all the time. It's going, to, it's going to start costing more and more and more to be a true Christian because you're going to have to stand out in the world and in love tell your 
friends and your family, uh, what God has said about this, that, or the other thing. I make you three promises if you pursue God in the Word and you give yourself to His service, if you become a genuine disciple, you will live a deeper life, a wider life, and you will have a lot more fun. <laughs> Disciples have more fun than churchgoers. And what I mean by that is just merely being a churchgoer. I just go to church because I think I should. I say it to you all the time. This does not, this not only doesn't please God, I, I think it, it makes Him angry. That anyone would come to a place that He has set aside for worship and to feign, to feign worship, to pretend, um, to be per, in a performance mode. I, I come to perform, I tip my hat to God, God is pleased, I leave. Um, all you have to do is read the Bible really in a superficial way. You realize that this is not pleasing to God. So Richard Owen Roberts was right. The old man at seminary, he was right. We need to know God. We need to know God. And as we do know God, as I've been talking about for the last six months, we'll become more like Peter. Christianity is not obligation. Christianity is a privilege Christianity is about a desire. Christianity is like, Lord Jesus, if, if, if that's you on the water, bid me come. I'm going to come to you. I know it's impossible for me to walk on the water, but I know if you bid me to come, I'll come. It's about desire. It's not about obligation or duty. So James is a faithful pastor. He's presenting God. Uh, let me just give you a quick summary here in chapter 1. Uh, the, the four or five attributes that he's already mentioned. Uh, verse 4, chapter 1, God is a generous God. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 1, He's a faithful, promise-keeping, rewarding God. Verse 17, God is omnipotently and infinitely good. Verse 17 again, God is immutable, meaning He is unchanging. Verse 20, God is righteous. James knows what every true pastor knows, and that is you can't live the Christian life if you don't know who He is. You will ultimately, you know, you'll try, you can try to do it in your own strength for a time. But ultimately, you will fail. You can't live biblical Christianity in your own strength. You can't do it. You can try for a while, you'll run out of gas. The only way to live biblical Christianity, born again, born again Christianity, is if God is your fuel. You know, I had a missions professor, he went to Brazil because he, he loved the Brazilian people. But he, he came back home, he said, after a while, I didn't love any of them. And he said, I realized my problem was I was trying to love from myself. And he says, I wasn't drawing down. He says, I wasn't delighting in God and there was no overflow. True Christianity is delighting in God and then there's this overflow, right? I delight in God. I love God. I commune with God. I'm in intimacy with God. And it flows out into my marriage. It flows out into my work. It flows out as I raise my kids. It flows out in the church. It flows out in the neighborhood. It's just overflow. It's just overflow from God. And it, it was a great lesson he taught us. He was my missions professor. He ultimately went back to Brazil. Uh, he got it right. I'm going to go back loving God and delighting in God. He's been back ever since. But that's true for you and I, beloved. Just to live our Christian lives. It has to be an overflow of the intimacy we have with Jesus Christ. So, 
the first nine verses here. Let's just go through them. Uh, this is a very practical, you know, the introduction is about who God is. And there's, there's, a, there's an attribute of God mentioned here. I don't know if any of you picked it up. Probably would be hard for you to pick it up if you don't know the passage well. But there's an attribute of God inferred here. Did anybody get it? In verse 5, James says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? What's implied there? And what's the context? The implication is you're to be impartial because God's impartial. That's the implication. You're to be holy because God is holy. You're to be merciful because God is merciful. You're to be loving because God is loving. And obviously there are some attributes that we, we cannot emulate. We cannot emulate His sovereignty. We're not to emulate wrath. But some of His attributes we do emulate. And God is impartial. The Bible is clear. God is impartial. And He calls us here, this is very practical theology, you know, boiled down into where we live every day. Are you biased? Are you prejudiced? Are you partial? God calls it a sin in this text. He's clear. He calls it a sin. So what does it mean to be impartial? It simply means to be unprejudiced, unbiased, devoid of favoritism. And God calls us to be that. And we can be that because He is God. I always love Deuteronomy 10.17 in this regard. Moses is waxing eloquent about how great God is. He says, God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. And then he says, the God who shows no partiality. He shows no partiality. Second Chronicles 19.7 says, the Lord will have no part in partiality. Acts 10.35, God says, I do not show partiality. So I know something that's true about you. It's true about every human being. We are not naturally like God in this regard. Sadly, in our fallenness, we're always sizing everybody up. Amen? Amen. We're always sizing everybody up. We tend to classify people based on the most shallow and superficial grounds, race, nationality, social status, Education, job, wealth, wardrobe, attractiveness, etc., etc., etc. God says, that's not how I looked at you when I adopted you into my family. <clears throat> I didn't size you up when I chose you to be one of my own. I'm an impartial God. Remember what He told Israel? He said, I didn't choose you because you're mighty. I chose you because I love you. And I love you because I love you. There's no reason for God to love us. We're rebels with weapons in our hands. We've not loved Him. We're all spiritual adulteresses as we've talked about the last several weeks. We're all guilty of loving something more than loving our Creator. We're all guilty. We weren't worthy of His love. We were worthy of His judgment, but He's loved us. He told Israel, and the same is true for every true Christian, I love you because I love you. 
There's no partiality involved. So, God calls us to emulate Him in this. To be impartial in the way we live our life. In the way we deal with people. God just flat out says it there in verse 1. He says, we claim to be Christians. We're not to be prejudiced and biased. We're not to have an attitude of favoritism. And I was thinking about it, you know, this church has been here, we're in our 12th year. We've had 80 nations come through the church, probably 700 plus people. There's been a ton of diversity, uh, which I love. Um, And, you know, it's just church is a lot easier back home where I'm from. Probably the same is true for you. Back home where you're from, everybody's probably... But Let's just take my example. Back where I'm from, I, live, I grew up in the Bible Belt, so there's churches on every corner. So you can just pick which one you want, which one, like, which one you like the best. I mean, um, you know, people that look like you and, and sound like you and are educated at your level and have your level of income and they smell like you. Uh, they, they, they're just like you. And you can go to church with them and it's all really comfortable. And everybody's the same. And we all believe exactly the same on every last minute detail of doctrine. We even all love the color of the carpet. It's just, we're just, we're so like one on everything, right? It's just how it is back home. Uh, At least where I grew up. Um, It's not like that here. And I like it much better here. Again, 80 nations in 12 years. I love the diversity. I, I've often said I don't let I go back to Little Rock. I just would hate to be, you know, in that box again. I'm afraid I'd get put in that box again. I just don't want to get back in that box. This ICM is always a little bit like heaven because every nation, tongue, and tribe, not every nation, tongue, and tribe, but a lot of the nation's tongues and tribes come through this church. So we love the diversity. You know why I love the diversity? For I personally enjoy it, but it honors Jesus Christ. It honors Jesus Christ when 80 nations come together, right, and love one another in an impartial way. This honors Jesus Christ. It makes Jesus look real in the world. When people see a church like this, although we're quite small tonight, they see a church like this, loving Him and loving each other. It's a powerful testimony to who Jesus Christ is and the power of the Gospel. This is a big deal for us. It's actually on our website. If you go to our website, this is what you read. We demonstrate an eager openness and extend genuine warmth to all people and we avoid cliquishness. We quote Galatians 3.28. This is, there is neither Jew nor Greek There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. So to be biased, to be prejudiced, to be partial in your Christianity, it's an oxymoron. God calls it a sin. Verses 2-4, to If you treat the man with a gold ring and fine clothes better than the poor man with dirty clothes, you are practicing favoritism and God calls it evil. God calls it evil. This is how God sees it. It's a big deal with God. Verses 5-7, to James reminds us that the Christian should never show partiality to the rich 
Why? Because God hasn't. God hasn't showed partiality to the rich. You guys may remember one of my favorite verses in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-28. God says, Consider your calling. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak thing of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world, and the despised things of the world, God has chosen. God is impartial. God shows no partiality. The Bible is true. God elects, but He's impartial in His election. This is a a great truth of the Bible. James says, don't you dare dishonor the poor Christian. He may not look like much, but he's a son and a daughter or a daughter of the king. He's rich. He has a rich inheritance. He's my adopted son. He's my adopted daughter. Don't you dare look down on any professed Christian. Never. Love them. Serve them. Minister to them. Encourage them. Come alongside them. It doesn't matter what color they are. It doesn't matter where they're from. It doesn't matter what denomination they say they belong to. Of course, if they're in a false denomination, we'll love them enough to encourage them to come out. You've got to come out. You can't stay in the false church. You've got to come out. If the church you belong to, and some of you are passing through, if the church you belong to doesn't magnify God and it doesn't preach this, you've got to come out. You've got to come out. And I'm going to say something that it bothers some people. But you know what a false church is, right? If it's false, where did it come from? Who's the father of every falsehood ever told on the planet? Who's the father of lies? If it's a false church, we know who's reigning in that church. Satan. It's a demonic church. You say, well, Jim, that's strong. I know it's strong. But all you have to do is put two and two together. He's the father of lies. And of course, God says to the Apostle Paul, any man preaches a gospel other than this one, let him be accursed. If an angel from heaven preaches a different gospel than this one, what? Let him be accursed. And we know Satan appears even as an angel of light. So something that I find that many Christians aren't very sophisticated on is this reality. And, and anytime you go to a church or settle in, you have to realize, is the Bible being preached or not? Is God being magnified or not? Is Jesus Christ the sinner or not? Or is it just religion? Religion won't do any of us any good, beloved. It won't do any of us any good. Quickly about the poor. Don't you dare look down on the poor. God says, Psalm 41, 1, Blessed is he that considers the poor. Proverbs 17, 5, Whoever mocks the poor reproaches God. Proverbs 28, 27, He that gives to the poor shall not lack. Proverbs 29, 7, The righteous considers the cause of the poor. It's how James closed out chapter 1, verse 27, a very famous verse. Some of you will be familiar with it. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is to what? Visit orphans and widows in distress. 
Christians do theology. We do the Word. We're in awe of this God. Then we do, uh, we, we live out the awe. It's the overflow of the awe. Obedience is simply the overflow of awe. You say, this is work. Obedience is work. Well, in some sense, yes, but in one sense, no. It's the overflow of being in relationship with an awesome God. I cannot not obey Him because I'm in awe of Him and I love Him above all things. Yes, I'll obey Him even if it costs me everything. It's what we see on the pages of the New Testament. It costs these men everything. It costs Paul everything. When was the last time you took a risk in your faith? When was the last time you engaged in risky obedience? In simple obedience to Jesus. It's what, it's what disciples do. It's what real believers do. I'm not saying we're perfect in this. Certainly we're not, and I'm certainly not. But we have what we need. God's given us all that we need. So whether the Christian is rich, poor, educated, uneducated, upper class, middle class, lower class, white, black, brown, red, yellow, it doesn't matter. They're our brother. They're our sister. We love them. And that's one thing I love about ICM. There's a genuine love here. Uh, Karen and I have loved every one of the 80 nations that have come through this church. We love them. Uh, it's an honor to know them. It's an honor to be in their family. It's an honor to, to worship with them. God says, do not be partial. So verses 8 and 9, He, he says, you should love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> we are to love our neighbor as ourself. So how much do you love yourself? A whole lot, I bet. I guess we'd have to say 90 plus percent of the time, you're pretty much thinking about yourself if you're a normal human being. We know that uh, we're impressed with ourselves. We think pretty highly of ourselves. Um, we want a whole lot for ourselves. Um, that's the natural inclination of, of, of fallen flesh. And we know Jesus has called us to live uh, across that current, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. We know it's a supernatural thing. We know we can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. I acknowledge it to God. It's not naturally in me to love anyone like that. The only way I can do it is to submit myself to the Word and the power of God. I give myself to the Word and the power of God. Lord God, use me to love this person in the way that You've called me to love them. And how are the brethren called to love one another? Does anybody remember, remember John 13? What did Jesus say? It's not just love the neighbor as yourself. It's, it's deeper. Anybody remember? Pardon me? Very good. Love your enemy. Jesus goes deeper with the brethren. He says, I call you to love each other even as I have loved you. Listen, nobody's loved you like Jesus. Nobody loves you like Jesus. Nobody's ever loved you like Jesus. This is far deeper than the law. This is far deeper than loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus wants us to... I'm supposed to love Chinelo as Jesus loved me. That's, that's the deal. Right? And Elaine is supposed to love me 
Like Jesus loves her. That's how it works. That's how it's supposed to work. That's what God means. And what does Jesus say? When, when the world sees you loving each other like that, what? They'll know you're mine. That's the only way the world will know you're mine is when they see how you love each other. You love each other like I've loved you. This is a supernatural deal. It's a big deal with God. And uh, it's an amazing thing. This is the law. He uses, look what he says there in verse 8. It's the royal law. I love how American preacher John MacArthur talks about this partiality. He said there is one, one legitimate kind of di uh, discrimination in the church. Who knows what it is? Pardon me? <laughs> one, discriminate, uh, one, one legitimate kind of discrimination. Pardon me? That's good. Philippians 2.3 let each one of you regard one another as more important than himself. This is the legitimate kind of discrimination in the church. Everybody else, oh, guess what, is more important than me. So it's right for you to esteem everyone else more than yourself. So if you're going to discriminate, you discriminate against yourself, right? This is what the Word of God says. Everyone else in the church means more or is more important than me. It doesn't mean I'm insignificant, but I see it that way. I see it like that. That's the prism I, I view the world through. It's humility, beloved. It's humility. 1 John 3.16, we ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. And I always love that. I love that verse, and I always like to remind you, that's not a call to death. It's a call to life. We give our lives in service to the brethren. We give our lives in the service in service to the brethren, in, in service to the body of Christ. It's what we do. It's what we're called to do. And it's what true believers do. Again, none of us are perfect at it, but we are becoming more and more mature all the time in doing it. Verse 9 again. This is how God feels about prejudice and discrimination. He says it's sin. He says it's a transgression. God says if you're practicing partiality, you've come up short. It's a big deal with God. He calls it sin. And you might say, well, Jim, this is pretty harsh language for a little partiality. It's just naturally in my flesh to be partial. So, you know, why is God being so hard on us? Look at verses 10 and 11. God says, if you keep every law perfectly but stumble in one, you are a transgressor. You're defying God's authority and His Word. Just a little partiality and you're guilty of all the law, beloved. You know this, right? Just a little bias and a little prejudice. You're, you're guilty of all the law. And he goes on to talk about you might as well be a murderer. You might as well be an adulterer. This is how God sees it. Of course, some sins are more heinous than others. But MacArthur talks about how the law of God is like a pane of glass. You can't, just, you can't just hit it with a hammer in one spot. The whole thing breaks. So I want us to feel the weight of what God is saying to us here. If you are, if you are biased, if you are prejudiced, if you are partial, 
God is telling us in the text, it is evil, it is sin, and you are transgressing and breaking the law of God. You are a rebel. And of course, this is what the good news is about, right? In Jesus Christ, we are cleansed of this sin that we're all guilty of. You come tell me after the service if you're not guilty of at some point in your life being biased and prejudiced. You come tell me. I'm just assuming you are. I've never met a human being that wasn't yet. But maybe you're different. Maybe you're different. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases the message in verse 10. Message Bible. He says, you can't pick and choose in the things specializing in keeping one law or two laws of God and ignoring all of the others. The Holy Spirit interjects adultery and murder into the conversation. It's just so you and I understand how serious this is with God. And James closes out this section here with an exhortation and a warning. And here in verse 12, he basically reiterates what he has said over in verse 22 of verse 1. Maybe one of the most famous verses in James. What does it say? You guys know this verse. What are we supposed to do? Somebody tell me from James 1.22, what do real Christians do? How do we prove that we're Christians? Not that we have to prove it, but how is proof seen? What is the evidence that we are true Christians? Someone tell me from the text. James 1.22. Endures of the word of we, only. we do it. Now what is a hearer? What is someone who only hears? What does God say about them? If you only hear the Word of God, but you don't do the Word of God, what does the Word of God say? You're deluded! You're playing a game. It's a sham. It's facade. You're deluded. You're delusional. Is one way we could say it. If all you do is hear and all you do is talk, you are delusional. The whole, this whole epistle is about being a word doer. And the only reason I didn't preach that text last week and the reason I skipped it is because I've been talking to you about this for six months, so I decided I'm not going to hammer it again. They know this. Real Christians do the Word, albeit imperfectly, but we do the Word. Our greatest desire and joy is to honor God in doing the Word. And when we fail and when we sin, we confess that failure and that sin, and God forgives us. And we get up and we charge on to be doers of the Word. It's what he's saying here. Verse 12 of James 2, Do it! Speak it! And act! As those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, meaning the Gospel. We live by the power of the Gospel. You have been liberated in Christ. You are free to never be prejudiced again. Why? Because Jesus Christ lives in you. That's why. And when you feel that prejudice wanting to well up in you, you give it to God. You confess it and you give it to God. And you throw it off. 
you throw it off. You remember how Jesus loved you without partiality. You know who you were before you came to Christ. You know who you were. You know what you were. I know what I was. It's just all grace. It's just all mercy. And this is what He talks about here. Verse 13, For judgment will be merciless to those who have shown no mercy. How is it impossible for a true Christian not to show mercy? Why is it impossible for a true Christian not to show mercy? Because we've received mercy. We understand exactly what mercy is all about. I didn't deserve mercy. And the person that offended me, they don't deserve mercy. But I didn't deserve mercy either. But I got mercy. So I give mercy. Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're not willing to forgive, you know, the, 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 those who have trespasses against you, what? The Father, Jesus says, the Father will not forgive you. If you haven't learned forgiveness, then you have not received it, is the point. If you can't forgive in your life, then you don't know anything about Jesus Christ. You don't know anything about the Gospel. It's the overflow. Forgiveness and mercy is the overflow of forgiveness and mercy. You've received it and it flows through your life. It's just what happens in biblical Christianity. So the mercy God has implanted in our born-again hearts will testify that we are indeed children of God by the mercy that we practice. By the mercy we practice, we give evidence of mercy received. Richard Owen Roberts is right, the old guy that came to seminary. The greatest need in the modern church is to know God because if we know God, if we know the biblical God, if we know who God says He is, we will be word-doers. We will. If we've been deceived by some cartoon Jesus, we can do church, but we can't do discipleship. You know, it's easy to come to church. You can be a church member without any faith at all. It takes no faith. The only faith that I heard one guy say, that the, 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 your average American, I'll just say it this way because he was talking in an American context. He said, you know, your average American Christian, the only risk he ever takes uh, in obeying Jesus or the only faith he shows is the drive to church. You know, he might die in an accident. That's the only faith he really ever exhibits. That's a pretty harsh commentary. It's a pretty harsh critique. But beloved, we're called to be word doers. We're called to be word doers. It's what, Jan it's what the whole book is about. I challenge you. It's a short book. Read it this week. Read the whole thing. No God, do the Word. No God, do the Word. No God, do the Word. This is what God looks like. Do it. This is what God looks like. Do it. This is what God looks like. Do it. And you know the great text is coming up. I probably won't preach it. I preached it two years ago. Without faith it is impossible to... No, that's Hebrews 11. I'm sorry. Hebrews 11. It's always in my head. James chapter 2. Faith without works is what? Someone tell me. It's what? It's dead. It's dead. It's useless. It's demon faith. The devils believe. The devils believe. 
You say, Jim, I believe in Jesus. The devils believe in Jesus. They believe everything He ever said. And he, they tremble at everything King Jesus ever said they tremble. They know who He is. Don't tell me you know that Jesus is God. Of course you know He's God. He is God. But how I know you really believe is you're out there living it. That's how I know. You don't have to prove anything to me. And I really don't have to prove anything to you. But your whole life is a commentary on what you believe to be true about Jesus. Your whole life, beloved. That's why these practical sermons are important. So we remember not to be partial. Not to be partial. I don't think I'm going to preach chapter 2 next week because uh, that, that, that famous thing about, you know, what good is it to, if, you, if you have faith but you have no works? Can that faith save a man? I don't think I'm going to go there because I did preach it a couple of years ago. If you want to know about that sermon, it's on the podcast site and I can direct you to it. So just ask me about that. Beloved, I encourage you. I encourage you. Show no partiality. Show no favoritism. Don't be prejudiced. Don't be biased. Show mercy. Love the brethren. This is what real believers do. Let's pray together.